This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. My name's Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And with me, as always, is Maxwell Vogue. Hey, Joris. How are you doing today? I'm well, Max. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Who do we have on the 3D Pod today? Well, today we've got Tim Bell. Uh, so Tim is actually the Additive Manufacturing Business Manager at Siemens. Uh, uh, the software part of Siemens, of course, Siemens is a giant uh, conglomerate that makes everything from just about everything. And Tim is also the, the uh, director of business development at AMUG, uh, the, the great conference and user group thing. And uh, well, he got started in uh, a long time ago, well, before he was a machinist. He's actually, we're having quite a lot of machinists here, actually. Uh, so he got started as a machinist. Uh, then he, he became an applications engineering. Uh, he had sort of senior engineering roles. Ended up in 2007 at Morris Technologies, a famed uh, service that was later acquired by GE. Then he ended up working for Microtech Finishing. They have this MMP kind of finishing process, which is actually really fascinating, actually. Maybe we'll touch on that. Then he went uh, to Beam, uh, which was a company, it was a French company, I think, that uh, uh, doing DED uh, type technology. And now he's at Siemens. So, yeah, very, very, uh, very all, all sorts of uh, different roles and all sorts of different parts of the whole machining experience, if you will. So, yeah, welcome, uh, Tim. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate your time. Yeah. So, so Tim, so first off, like, uh, um, we've had a couple of guys here that started as machinists, right? Uh, does that give you a really different kind of looking at, a way of looking at parts? Does it give you more of an intimacy, if you will, or a thorough understanding of them? Or It does. It, you know, as a machinist, it's a... It's a methodical planning process, right? You you have to take a block and transform it into geometry. And, you know, I remember my first uh, interaction with 3D printing was the Z-Corp machine that was the cornstarch and glue printer. And I was just dumbfounded that, wait a minute, I can just start with the raw material and just end with the geometry and not have to transform the <laughs> block. And I was like, uh-oh. And at that time, I felt myself being pulled to the dark side, if you will. <laughs> But do you, do you feel like before when you would look at the wooden block that almost like you were the slicing engine, if you will, on some level? I mean, I mean, you know, you're still using computers and stuff, but. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and in my career, I started out as a, a manual toolmaker. So, you know, for me, there wasn't even any slicing. It was okay. I got to remove this piece and this, this area and this area. And, and I find that no matter the manufacturing process, it's all the same workflow. We're just transforming mm-hmm. one thing into a sellable object. <laughs> that's fair okay okay and and how did you then advance did you did you just advance within companies or did you take lots of schooling on the side how, how did you get from machining into more application development that kind of thing um well so i started my career as a tool maker worked for you know about 10 years at several different machine shops here in cincinnati and then had the opportunity to buy into a machine shop and became a partner in it and built that company up. Uh, we did a lot of production automotive. We did some aerospace. We did some sporting goods and uh, ended up separating with my partner and starting another machine shop focused on designing and building high-speed machinery and forging equipment. And that was where I started getting introduced to additive. And that was my first inroads there. So I've been an entrepreneur. I've done four startups. Um, 
going to Morris Technologies was the solidification of me going to the dark side. <laughs> and, you know, I, I'd only done subtractive and, you know, prototyped with additive and walking into Morris and, and those guys having this vision of, hey, this metal 3D printing can be taken to production. And, so, you know, tasking the team with figuring out how to do that was an absolute amazing process. So Morris, did you believe it at the beginning? Oh. <laughs> um, uh, yes, because I'm a, uh, I'm a, I, I like to look ahead, right? Um, whatever right. we're doing today may not, should not be what we're doing tomorrow. As humans, we're continually evolving. Fair enough. Okay. And then, so yeah, just in case you don't know, like Morris, um, well, Greg Morris ran this service that was just a manufacturing shop. And then they all of a sudden decided to look at uh, AM in a very much more fundamentally deep blue way of 3D printing. And they became a pioneering service. I think the first really in manufacturing and one of the largest metal printing services in the world that were later acquired by GE. They, uh, you know, did a lot of the early qualification, the really, really, really highly demanding parts and uh, high tolerance, high performance parts where everyone else was just focusing a little bit on prototyping or working in other areas uh, outside of just aerospace. So it must have been a really pretty amazing place to work, right? I tell you, <laughs> I've had this discussion a few times in my career, and it was an amazing place to work because they knew how to do 3D prototyping in plastics, right? They were amazing at it, silicon molds, uh, machining of molds. They had a, a team inside that were made up of artisans, modelers, painters, uh, mold makers, and machinists. And when they bought the first metal uh, powder bed fusion machine and brought it to the U.S., you know, it was like, that was a big step. Those guys, they, you know, they put their neck on the line and brought that machine over without any idea whether or not this could really work. And when I went there, they, they had about three machines by the time I got there. And it was so interesting the first time I sat down for a process review of a customer request. And I'm sitting around the table and most of the people were artisans. They weren't traditional machinists or automotive manufacturing guys and myself and the quality manager at the time were the most hardcore mach machine and manufacturing guys and we're listening to the interactions and i was blown away i was blown away by the viewpoints of non-traditional manufacturing people and to this day i feel that the creativity that came out of those early days was because of that and it was because mixing the traditional and non-traditional together and it I wouldn't say force, but it, it enabled me to evolve and start thinking differently and not everything didn't have to be prismatic and didn't have to be, you know, square to a spindle of some sort. And it could be very fluid and organic. Yeah, exactly. I, mean, I remember when I was at Materialize, we had a, or it was actually an optional thing and I did it. You got to work in the, 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 literally like the post-processing department, if you will, finishing and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, I was like really dumbfounded by this. I was like, this is like an art school kind of thing. <laughs> Absolutely. This is like, yeah, this is like, and I actually managed to, there was a large, I actually managed to, I was filing down a part. Like I had like a little beveled edge and it was meant to be like a clipping kind of part. And it was for a uh, for a uh, concept car, <laughs> and I ended up filing it down too much. <laughs> and I think the guy was going to kill me. I would, I would be, I'd be so terrible at this. But because the amount funny. of focus you have to do, because it's like it's it's creativity, but it's like creativity at a perfection level, but then for hours and hours a day, I was in immense respect for that. The it's funny because the post processing room at Morris, the guy who ran that department was also an art professor at the local university. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's, so, it's yeah, kind of guys. Yeah, yeah. 
I used to watch the model shops in China do a lot of this as well. And yeah, it's remember, amazing. And like now we look today at the and end of it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it, nope. it's funny because my role at Siemens, and just as a correction from the beginning there, Joris, um, I actually work for Siemens Digital Industries, okay, okay. which is the overarching business unit that has Siemens software in it, but it also has Siemens automation and Siemens uh, digitalization. So the software mm-hmm. is only one piece of the pie. And in my role, it's uh, to herd all these cats, these these amazing, brilliant people and bring them together uh, to help industrialize additive, whether it be software, automation or true digitalization. And how do you, how do you guys work together with companies? Because like, do you help them industrialize? What, what's, what do you guys actually do? Yeah, we just sell we do. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny because Siemens has been using additive for nearly 20 years. And for the last... 10 years as production component manufacturing for gas turbine engines. So we're talking turbine blades. We're talking uh, burner tips for large gas turbine engines for energy production. And through those years of developing those processes, we've developed tools in-house. So whether it be tools for software planning, so maybe it's build simulation tools or topology optimization or generative design tools, all the way through the simulation of the part working on the software side. And on the hardware side, the automation, we're, we're very deep into helping people get to that, dare I say, holy grail of in-situ monitoring to ensure first part right. You know, today, everybody likes has to cut up everything and pull everything to understand if the material properties meet spec. And what Siemens is focused on is can we can we take this digital machine and extrapolate enough data from it to know what the machine did and give OEMs and end users that confidence that the part is what they wanted it to be? Yeah. And how does that work? I mean, is this like a consultancy thing or is this an engagement that is being powered by NX licenses? How does, how does it work? Exactly? Two different things. So, yeah. So on one side, the software team sells NX licenses and plant sim and 3D sim and all these tools to allow end users and designers to maximize the digital uh, format of the components. And then on the automation side, so Siemens sells CNC controls, PLCs, IPCs, motors and drives to the machine OEMs. And then the third piece of that is somewhat what you could call consultancy is we have a facility in Charlotte that I stood up uh, a couple of years ago called CATCH. It's the Charlotte Advanced Technology Collaboration Hub. And its sole purpose in life is to help industrialize additive. And typically we do that with an OEM and an end user together to solve a problem. And you know, at Siemens, we have another division called corporate technology where we have hundreds of PhDs with, with just amazing projects and software and materials and AI and all these things. So we bring these, these experts all together and try to solve these problems at catch through a project. And then catch is not it's not a house that prints parts as a service all we do is bring a machine in bring processes in, develop materials processes automation and software specific to someone historically we've always looked at 3d printing as the swiss army knife right if it fits in that volume we should be able to produce it and i think it was hans longer and amug a couple years ago had made the comment that he felt the future of additive was more application driven so Certain geometries, certain components, their printing should be specific on a machine, um, whether it be tailored machine or custom machines for certain types of components. 
But that to me a is lot, like, I know. it's so obvious <laughs> that I don't really see how, how it could be different. <laughs> but is that me? Maybe because like a couple of years ago, we were thinking about like printing everything. We we're thinking this is going to replace manufacturing. Is that what you mean? Is that the difference? Yeah, there was, um, if you're all familiar with the Gartner hype cycle, there was this, there was that top of that peak where everybody, all the marketing people were going nuts, convincing the world that all you had to do is put your drawing in and hit print and you were going to have a part coming out. Well, we all crashed, right? Everybody knew, well, those of us had been in a while knew that that wasn't true, but all the newcomers crashed. And now we're at this realization point of just because you can print it doesn't mean you should. Yeah, I think so. I think. What That's I do is fair. I did a presentation that I do often actually, but it's it's uh, I did it at a manufacturing strategies our event last year, and I talk about three D printing a golf club. Right, at what mm-hmm. point would we three D print the whole golf club? Right, no, it's there is no done. point because it doesn't make sense. Right? Actually, it's ridiculously Taylor expensive. Yeah, yeah. TaylorMade's done it. Uh, I think it was TaylorMade's done it as, with as a sellable line. product. Yes, yeah. yes, because mm-hmm. the reason is is in the club head printing a titanium with with powder bed fusion, mm-hmm. the club surface can be engineered for the correct amount of spring mm-hmm. right yeah, yeah but, but what i'm cast. saying is that, yeah what i'm saying is we don't print the hole we print just the head or the face of the head yeah or that one sweet spot right we don't bother with the rest of the head if we can print the sweet spot only and we do that or the handle you know we try to print the parts where there, there's a value add and there's like the, we're printing like the tip of the spear or the the cutting yes. edge of the blade you know absolutely yeah we've started a program inside of catch called think additive and our own factories within Siemens. We're going into our own factories and working with the people on the shop floor, getting them to think additive. And it doesn't mean, Hey, we make a million of these a year. We should replace that with additive. And that's not the thought. The thought is where are the pain points? Where are the struggles for supply chain? You know, where are the complex items with long lead times? And I'm not talking about production. I'm talking about shop aids, you know, factory, tools and fixtures and jigs that low-hanging fruit we've been preaching it forever but not everyone has actually got there and that's what we're trying to help with it seems 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 like such a big company that you guys can (laughs) literally just grab 16 components off the shelf and be like there you go there's a printer it's all just about i mean today uh, you may be aware that uh two years ago i think it was that um we spun out siemens energy and when we did that, it took us down to 330,000 employees and 70 billion in revenue yes, annually. Such a tiny number. You know? So that gives you some perspective. There, I right. think <laughs> our, our annual revenue is larger than the GDP of many countries. Yeah. Well, the, the thing with the, the Siemens Energy, they were the guys that had this giant thing in Sweden, right? This giant production center in Sweden that had like dozens of printers. And it, was that like really difficult for you guys? Because that's like a big Because right, you lost the toys. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yes and no. So we had Fensbong. We also had material solutions in the UK and then also Siemens Energy's uh, Orlando Innovation Center. So there were and there were actually four different units of Siemens Energy that were doing additive and they've recently been combined into one. And I don't want to say it, it has hurt us because still to this day, Siemens AG globally, we still have 300, maybe 400 printers globally. Right. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Interestingly enough, Catch in Charlotte is inside of Siemens Energy's gas turbine engine uh, assembly yeah. bay. 
But you guys still work. Yeah. Yeah. And we work hand in hand. So as I said, you know, we're a development side and additive at catch to where Siemens Energy is a production side. So we're work hand in hand with them to do a lot of development work and hand it off to them. And then but the thing is like you, you see it like you kind of paint a very rosy picture of like Oh, we find some parts and we help people and so. But but what I found is that if I do a project in a large company, uh, mm -hmm. um, then the problem is usually like institutional resistance and it's kind of like you know whose responsibility is it? It's this kind of change management stuff that's really much more important even maybe than the parts of the three D printing application, right? You just you just touched on the hardest part of my job: change management. Uh, Siemens is a giant company. We've established that. And there are lots of processes and procedures that must be followed to execute anything. And we all know that the bigger the company, the slower that moves. So that's why we created Catch as this small, I guess I'll call it a startup inside of Siemens that has um, figured out a way to be much more agile, following the rules, but much more agile in us being able to quickly react with all this horsepower. And that's been the key. Uh, we do projects that are DOE funded, DOD funded. Uh, there's specific defense contractors that we work with. Uh, we work with the institutions, Oak Ridge and, and such. So we're, we're, we're that tiny little entity in Charlotte that knows how to leverage the horsepower of Siemens, but does it on a quick movement like a startup. Is, is that one of the ways that you've found to I don't want to say competence, but to adjust to going from a startup environment where you, you know, you did four companies on your own and then you <laughs> go to one of the largest damn companies on the face of the planet. And so you have to make a startup inside of it to like keep sanity, so to speak. You uh, absolutely hit the nail on the head. That yeah, has kept me, <laughs> that's kept me here. As you can imagine, it's difficult for someone like myself to come to a company that, you know, has to have five signatures on a document right. to do something unique. Um, and I'm just beating my head against the wall going, why? This is just so wasteful, but it's the way you have to do it. So, yes, uh, yeah. developing catch has definitely been my my sanity. Okay, okay. And, and, and if we're looking at these things, so, so yeah, change manager is difficult. You know, what are the other things like, like there's other stuff like, well, we, we hit other roadblocks as well. What do you have like, you know, what are your thoughts, for example, on standardization and and, and and just generally kind of qualifying materials and stuff like that, because that's also often a very, very difficult kind of path forward, right? Yeah. And, you know, I'm on the ASTM F42 committee and, you know, we see a lot of these standards that are being pushed through and the team is just doing amazing work there. But I think you hit on something that's been a problem forever, an additive or any nascent technology is it requires, we haven't had a boom of government needs since World War II. If you think, look back at World War II, the influx of money to produce war support, forced development of manufacturing technology. Since then, we've not had that. So since then, it's required large end users, the GEs and Boeings and Pratt Whitney's of the world and Honeywell and these folks and to push technology along. But in doing so, they invest so much money that they create their own internal standards that aren't across the board. So it doesn't help the technology become solidified as turning or milling if that makes sense and and it's like kind of in a cynical way yeah. uh, that, that that maybe they have an advantage in kind of driving these internal standards and keeping these things rather opaque right correct uh i remember there was a hod lipson was looking for the white house there was a, he was on like his fact-finding mission for the white house to find out how we could use 3d printing to to make 
you know, for the United States. And my suggestion was to make all of the, the, the American military kit be the property of the government. So as in the, the files would be owned by the government and the files could get other people to produce them. <laughs> yep. That doesn't and, go anywhere. <laughs> no, but it's, <laughs> but it's a good idea. <laughs> well, and if we look at additive is, you know, it's one of the most able technologies for distributed manufacturing. That is the key. If you right. think of a, a, a large automotive OEM and they want to print the same part in multiple countries, they should be able to have some secure network that allows them to shoot that digital file to any of their suppliers securely. And that's exactly what you talked about. It's what we're doing within Siemens is we're creating this cybersecurity. Um, let me put it this way. Imagine if you could use blockchain and an industrial NFT for those files and if the government owns the files they can just distribute them out to vendors safely okay but this okay this to me is is really interesting because I, I, there are very few things i've talked about more than about this and this whole kind of industrial drm kind of this one-time use files i just don't get it i just don't because like okay so i agree yeah. and what we're doing is we're not saying one-time use yeah okay, okay. Through the complete digital twin or digital thread of the of an additive process, because think back, it's the only manufacturing process that's truly digital. It's the only process you can't make apart from a paper drawing. So now you have this full digital thread. And let's say you distribute that digital file out to the vendor and it runs on a machine that's connected. So now all of the data from the machine can go into that file and go back to the owner of the file. So now they have historic records of the process, the materials, environment, I mean, all of the attributes. So now it's not just a one-time run and burn. It's run and get it back for continuous improvement. Because you would maintain that, because like the problem I have with this whole DRM, kind of this ephemeral idea, this, this encrypted file getting sent places, is that you can't, because you, I can always read it out through the machine, right? <laughs> or the, the even even the monitor, and, the, and if it's being displayed, right? Um, so to me, is that, or, and, and, and to me, it's always been much more important to keep your whole, for example, your file storage and, and the way you, because a lot of people are emailing these files at the present time, but, and that's not <laughs> yeah, great. I mean, I'm much more about like, you know, you're generally your cybersecurity should be great. You know, uh, you know, just having this one file be encrypted is not going to solve anything if they hack your email server and you send everything to everyone's email, right? Correct. And if you, if you've ever been in a military repair depot, whether it be army, Navy, wherever, not one machine and their depots are connected. They have to literally hand type G code into their machining centers, oh, turning oh, centers. Oh, really? Yes, they're not oh, because uh, of cybersecurity yeah. issues. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean that makes sense, but I just I'm like, good God, you can't. USB exactly. I mean, I, I walked into <laughs> Puget Sound and I'm I'm watching a guy type in G code and I'm like, man, I did that in the '80s. Why is he doing that today? So I started asking the question. They said, well, IT won't let us connect. I'm right. like, okay, what about? A flash drive. He's like, nope, no flash drives. I said, what about an internal network that's not connected to the outside world? The answer is just no. Right. So I, I got an idea. You can print out the G code and then you OCR it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how I hide the virus. I hide the virus in the G code, and when you OCR it, the virus gets transferred across. <laughs> <laughs> this saves you a lot of time, dude. This saves you a lot of time. Don't laugh. This is a good that's idea. fantastic. I, I, I can't believe you said that. That's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> But what we're trying to do is can, is tell them, look, there are ways to do this securely, and if we do this, and and I don't, you know, I don't want to use buzzwords like blockchain and NFT, but if we use that, but that's that's in fairness, those technologies weren't originally conceived of for like making crypto and crap like that. No, it was 
conceived of for, or well, it's, it's better usage, I should say, is for tracking things and doing logistics. And that's what you're talking about here. So I understand everyone references back to, to crypto and crap like that, but that's, that's not where the beauty of this technology actually lies. It's in the I ability agree. To, to track information individualized like that and that, that, that it's decentralized and it's more secure. But okay, that's my whole. <laughs> yeah, and to your to your point, Joris, you know, sure, you're, you can see it on the screen or you could, you know, go through the parameter sets. But at some point, if somebody's producing production components, why do they need to see that? No, if I guess, you think I mean, about so you think about two different things. Think about a CNC control where you see all the G code flying by versus a PLC control where you don't see any of the motion control. No, exactly. I think, but it's also, it's important. I like the idea of this, this is military kind of army machine shop kind of thing, because sometimes you have, you see things that are like, do not run machine. There's like a little sign, do not run machine above 7,000 RPM, right? Or, <laughs> or never turn off this box, you know? Uh, and there's also, and there's also like, uh, you know, there's all these instructions and there's always kind of this tribal knowledge. Like one of the reasons why uh, GE bought Morris you know, yes, they could do amazing things, but the tribal knowledge in that group of people was so strong that it never, it didn't live anywhere else, right? Yeah, it was amazing because they came in and said, okay, where's all the written IP? And we just kind of looked at each other. Like, huh? <laughs> I what am are, the what are you talking IP, about? Oh, right? uh, what, documentation? No. What? <laughs> but, but, so how are you going to get that kind of stuff into this digital twin thing? Because that to me is very really exciting. And especially if we see how things are actually made, you know? Yeah, it's going to require simulation tools like we've never seen before and you know we work we're working on a project now for a, a large-scale fdm printer where we want to do a full simulation of the build right zero properties thermal properties the whole nine yards and create a digital twin to give the machine and tell the machine hey monitor every damn thing you do and adjust yourself to maintain zero of this right don't and you can operate within this tolerance that's that's the future um, so that you don't need the tribal knowledge. You're always going to have it. You're always going to need engineers to do the work ahead and behind. But the actual act of printing shouldn't require tribal knowledge. Yeah, to, but to me, it, it's still, okay, then we look at a, a post-processing, right? And we look at like assembly steps and all this kind of stuff. At one point, don't we need that? Kind of, don't we need to capture that kind of stuff? We do. We do for lower, for lower quantity stuff. But as the quantities go up, the automation makes more sense. And we'll give us better results, hopefully, right? So, so that's so, the idea. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's working okay. Um, uh, but, but just so generally, like, uh, talk to me about where is this digital twin going to live in the enterprise? Because you know we have this thing called ERP. Then we've got PLM, right? Then we've got our CAD software. Uh, you know, where is it going to live throughout all these things? Or is it going to be a di digital twin package? Can I buy it and then I deploy it? How is this going to actually work? Because I've seen a lot of stuff. Talk about it, but a lot of it is not super practical. So. I love I love this question. I'm so glad you asked it. So if you think about the process flow you just laid out. You've got PLM to an ERP to an MES to a quality system and then to probably some discrete monitoring systems. Now, each one of those are probably different software manufacturers, but they're all pushing around data. And if we think about the digital twin, the digital twin is the first input. So that's the, the simulation of everything. And then the output, you should also get a digital twin to say, this is what you did. Along the way is the digital thread. The thread is just, where does it go within all of those software packages? You know, we have a graphic that we show and actually we'll launch it at Formnext that shows, this is what a digital thread looks like. And no, it doesn't have to touch all Siemens stuff. It can touch everybody's. 
And if you're familiar with the Siemens accelerator platform for software, uh, getting away from that giant licensing model and going to a SaaS model. And if all these, if Materialize and Siemens and everybody goes to the SaaS model that you're using the tool that you need, that digital thread will change based on application. But the twin yeah. is that is that whole ecosystem. Okay, okay. And to me, it sounds very big company stuff. Just like our, it sounds like something for Honeywell and these kind of guys. But is this well, also honestly, applicable for smaller businesses? Or it is because of that use what you need uh, idea. If you look at the automotive folks, yes, they're the first ones that jumped in on this whole digital thread and digital twin end to end because they have the bandwidth to consume that. Mm. I always say when we when Siemens presents and we throw this elephant on the table and you see smaller companies' eyes, they're just glaze over. And I'm like, hold on, one bite at a time. You may not need this section, so you just skip from here to here. And if you go to a SaaS model for a lot of these tools, you don't, you don't have to use them all. You can just use the ones that you need. Okay, that to me is, is quite interesting. But and and then and if we're looking at this this kind of this digital thread, digital twin kind of approach, I mean, I mean, it, it seems kind of daunting because it seems like a thing that we would have to implement, but we would not have any knowledge in it. So how would I go about actually kind of making that a, a core technology or something I can deploy within my enterprise? So that's that's where our consultants come in and our and our applications people come in. A Siemens can come in and help map that out. And we're not just doing it as a sales idea. We, we can come in and show how we've done it in our own factories, in our own smaller owned companies. So Siemens, as we talk about as a giant company, we have four core business units. And then we have a portfolio of companies that are, a lot of them are small, you know, less than 500 people. I said, I know that's a relative term, but less than 500 people. And we're helping them do the same thing. So it's it's palatable by a small company, but you've got to start somewhere. And we've all walked in a machine shop and, you know, they've got, uh, they're living out of spreadsheets and, and written travelers and you got to start somewhere. And typically, you know, a lot of small manufacturers, the only digital stuff they're doing is their accounting. And then the next step is they've got to integrate an ERP. So they know how to, to plan their resources better and then get into an MES. So it's a, it's a step-by-step process. This is nice. It seems like a good vision. But then also at the same time, I'm fascinated by a couple of weeks ago, and it's a bit longer now. I'm still thinking about it. There was a, a interior trim and interior uh, components, like a tier, I guess it would be two, 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 three, uh, components manufacturer in the automotive industry. And they bought two M290s and they had no additive knowledge whatsoever. And then the AOS <laughs> additive lines people helped them implement it. And I, I love this. This is like a super textbook kind of a, approach to how we can accelerate adoption of additive, right? Yep. And 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 you're you're kind of like the, the adoption of digital twin sounds like really kind of um you know really tempting kind of example of this. But in reality what's going to happen, they're going to start a competence center, they're going to put some smart people there, then they're going to buy a machine. And for the first year they do nothing, right? And then and then and then later on they try to industrialize. So it, it takes just so long, right? It takes them a, a big company is going to take them five million and two to three years to kind of come to grips with this technology and then they have to scale up. Right. You guys do, you know, is there a way that you can help? Because that, that, that to me seems like it's like a really big thing holding everyone back. Yeah. And, and we do that. We'll come in with teams of people to help execute, execute those things. But you're right. On an enterprise level, it's not a it's not a small task and it's not a cheap task. It requires revenue. And, you know, we have tools that sometimes appear to be only enterprise vision, but they're not. The small guys can take these things on. 
Uh, it's funny you mentioned the interior component. I don't know if you saw the article several months back where GM had to use 3D printing for one of the Tahoe or Suburban interior pieces because of a supply chain problem. Oh, you know, that's, that's the first step yeah. added it to the rescue. And now it's like, Oh, wait a minute. How, how do we, how do we bring this into a larger scale? Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually that, that's one of the unsung heroes. I mean, I think the first, uh, well, there's a ton of bridge manufacturing cases within automotive specifically with polymer additive being called in. Uh, I think on uh, Lamborghini was one of the first uh, to really do it uh, in the mid nineties or something like that. So, you know, but nobody talks about that because that, that means that you screwed up right? <laughs> and the, the launch of your car is in danger. So Somebody like messed up. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So this is, I thought it was really nice of GM to say, okay, we actually made a mistake, but we're going to gloss over it because we do use MGF to make all these uh, parts. So I, I really like that because I think there's very few cases that have become public and it really has saved uh, people's bacon or saved their launch dates at least uh, for a number of times for some people. Uh, and do you think, you know, how can a company industrialize out of quicker? Is there, what is the solution besides like spending what it seems like a lot of money on consultants? Is there other ways we can do this or? Yeah, it's, it's, Again, think additive, create the uh, mindset internally, and then you've got to build the correct workflow because it doesn't, today you can't just throw a 3D printer on the floor of a shop and add it as a work center and say, okay, I'm going to route parts through there. There's different manufacturing engineering. So there is a mindset, um, you know, back, I hate to go back again, but if you go back to the Morris days, um, when I spun off Microtech, we went to a company who had bought a bunch of EOS machines and they were like, Hey, we bought all these machines. You know, how long is it going to take us to, to get up and running? And I was like 18 months before you see a dollar off of those machines, man. And I think we've shortened that. So smaller companies can start implementing these things quicker. Still, point, you're right? still talking months before you can really get it up and running. Right? It's not like days. Yes and no. And okay. this is what we've been doing at Catch is we, we've been, we've purchased some machines for specific projects. So we don't just buy machines for the fun of it. They don't give me that kind of money, unfortunately. <laughs> but, but we go and find a project and we buy a machine. And we bought a laser wire DED system that I'm not lying to you. It was wired up and running in three hours printing parts. Okay. Fair enough. And, and I was looked at that and went, was it yes, it was. It was. <laughs> 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 but if you look at Meltio's business model, it's exactly what Angle and Brian are trying to do is say, look, this doesn't have to have this huge learning curve and this huge check that needs to be written to get into this. And they're doing a great job with it. Yeah. Yeah, I love now that. Putting I love Meltio head on a robot to do even more advanced things like autonomous machining and repair using a robot. Yeah, I love them. And I love that they're just like that, that literally what you said, that, that, that kind of up and running kind of thing. One click metals trying to do a similar thing in powder bit of fusion. I think that, that kind of like quick systems, safe systems that, that, that really let you kind of like run with it. And so yeah. like Melt is super versatile as well as you use it for a ton of different stuff. It's just not just like a one. I mean, you just said it one click metal and exact metal. Those two guys, you know, you can get their machine on the floor and run it in hours as well. And I think I think also like the, the the lovely thing about Melty as well is that we have been very powder bed fusion focused, and powder bed fusion folk is a really complicated, really expensive technology. So often when we think of, you know, you talk about additive taking eighteen months to implement. Well, yeah, that's powder bed fusion taking eighteen months to implement. Other things might be you know very different or very much easier, right? Yep. And one of the things that I've seen is binder jet. The binder jet is probably at the forefront of hitting real production numbers of any of the modalities or technologies today. Um, we're involved with a lot of 
large OEM automotive companies who are looking at Binderjet and saying, wow, this really has legs for for producing production parts. Uh, is interesting, but like the big problem there is, of course, the simulation of the shrinkage and just process control generally. Are you guys helping address those things, or we are, we are. Um, you know, we're working with the leaders who have created their own packages and helping them with some of our tools. And and because that the shrinkage and you know how does it shrink, where does it shrink, all that is the big, big problem. If you look at desktop, they've created that live center tool, and quite frankly, it's powerful. It's got it's got legs for sure. That's that's a tool that. The industry is needed in binder jetting that they've spent a lot of money trying to make happen. And other other like I mean I think binder jet's obvious like it, binder jet can take like dumber parts than we're used to and cheaper parts I think. Yep. Uh, in some cases also finer parts I think that 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 won't work because you know they'll just be ripped apart you know if we do the post processing and stuff. Yeah. You know a DD to me is bigger and also repair and then are you seeing other te- technologies that are coming in that you're like really excited about besides binder jet or? Yeah, there's two. So meld. So the friction stir additive manufacturing is probably the one that's moving faster than anybody realizes. You know, they're producing forging replacements in weeks versus years for some applications. The really, really exciting thing about uh, MELD is this, this tank thing. They're doing the tank thing, the, the tank <laughs> hole, yeah. right? Yeah. Yep. Yep. And so Siemens is... has been involved with that since day one. Uh, we have exactly. all <laughs> the CNC controls for Ingersoll machine and MELD are Cinemeric. Yeah, so that's also Astro America. We had uh, them on before. They're involved with that as well. And that's just, if we're looking at the, okay, the application is super simple. Tanks usually have to be welded together. If there's an explosion from below, or tanks in another vehicle, right? If there's an explosion from below, these welds and seams and things rip apart. So we should make it out of one part. It's like the super simple thing. And But the thing is, the part size of this is insane, right? They're, they're talking <laughs> yes. about meters long parts, right? <laughs> That's why that jointless hull machine is, it can print 30 feet by 20 feet by 12 feet. <laughs> yeah. And interestingly crazy. enough, the, the meld process, um, you know, they've spent 10 years developing this and they're just now taking off. And, and it's, it's been interesting to watch that. The other one that I think has uh, the most runway of potential growth is continuous composites. If you're okay. not well, familiar you with them. Continuous composites. Yeah. So they use a robot to lay carbon fiber, Kevlar, aramids, and they cure it on contact. You don't need a mold or an autoclave. I mean, they can literally print in free space. Like a 3D pen. Yeah, because there's a number of businesses doing this, right? There's a number of companies. And so far, it's kind of like, it, it's waiting for the right part. I think is that's the problem with, with with waiting for the right part. Where hand layup is too expensive. Where you know short fiber doesn't really work. It, it's kind of like and where also the environmental stuff where it makes sense. Is that is that your uh, your actually as well? actually no. They're they're focused on geometry creation rather than skin creation. One of the advantages that I saw with continuous composites is a project with the Air Force where they actually three D printed an entire drone wing. What was cool about it is their process can also lay down nichrome wire for preheating leading edges. It can lay down uh, glass fiber for lighting inside the wing. Oh, uh, electrical traces. So it's not it's not just printing out the fiber and you know it being ready to go without a mold or an autoclave. It's about what else can it do, and print geometry. Maybe there needs to be a some type of sensor off the wing, and there needs a housing for a rake or some thermocouple. All that's done in the print. Yeah, it's getting closer oh, oh. to the actual dream of of hitting the go button and having a workable electronic come out of the other end of it. 
yep. from nothing to yes. something. Yeah, Siemens, yeah. we're focused on a lot of on 3D printing, flexible circuits, and shaped yeah. circuits. What's a yeah, shaped so circuit? I know what a flexible circuit is, but I don't oh, know th- what a think about uh, Think about, we live in a world with these flat rectangle circuit boards, right? And the question is why? If the housing of something has, is round, well, why don't we print the housing and print the electronics in the housing? Because of the SMTP machine that is currently <laughs> making the boards. <laughs> yeah, but we got to start somewhere. No, 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 no. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm just saying that's why we're doing it. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, we buy millions and millions of circuit boards at Siemens and make them. And we're we're all looking at them ourselves going, okay, a couple things, electronics, circuit boards, magnets, motors. We do it the yeah. same way we've always done it because we've got this cost structure we understand. But can we redesign these leveraging additive to have better performing, longer lasting products? Yeah, because because how close is this? Because the thing is, it's being used in high-end military, defense-type related stuff, right? Where you think about this continuous composite thing, which, by the way, I'm pretty sure is also being used in in, in working drones in a, in a very extensive way as in the whole body and stuff to make attributable mm-hmm. uh, drones and stuff. But this kind of stuff is being used in that. But how close is this to kind of like the devices around us? Or what are the kind of devices that we could see these printed circuits and flexible electronics in the, the soonest? Uh, we're working on some wearable sensors. Um, if you think mm. about warfighters and their their health and uh, you know, let's just be honest, their their sanity. Um, are there things that we can do to monitor them to better not control, but better monitor to make better decisions? And you know, we've done some of this stuff and made sensors for uh, testing, not on warfighters, but race car drivers. And right. Whether you're like it's like a wearable strip or ring or something that my pulse or like whatever. If I'm being uh, overly excited, or well, what are we looking at? Like an Apple Watch. Exactly. <laughs> uh, there's me. a there's an outfit out of Germany that builds a weaving machine that can weave electronics into a shirt. And in yeah, essence, it's cool. 3D printing. Yeah. Well, I've yeah, seen the new great. weaving, the audit weave, automated weaving machines, which are also very cool. That you can take very almost cool. any pattern into it. And- and it's funny because we we look at these new novel technologies and we don't realize the amount of automation technology that has to evolve to get there. Yeah. People are asking for faster communication speeds between motors and drives and the the motion controller or they're asking for faster or let's call it real-time sensor data that can be acted upon. And those are tough calls and Siemens is fighting that battle every day trying to solve these problems. Okay, so Tim, so you know, where where do you hope to be, or what do you hope to achieve with that over the next uh, five years or so? Uh, from my personal perspective, being with Siemens, um, I want to be part of the uh, group of people who push additive to that industrialization point, where we don't think of prototyping first; we think of component production first. Um, Siemens has the horsepower. Um, we have the visibility. So that that's my goal. And I think it has to be done through awareness. And it takes companies like Siemens and, and the big automotive OEMs and aerospace and defense manufacturers to send that message so that it trickles down and it happens. All right. Yeah. Hey, Tim, goals. thank you yeah. so much for this today. This is really, really a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. And yeah, I know I talk a lot. It's no, it's good. What I this do. is a talk show. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. All right. And uh, thank you for being here as well, Max. Always yours. And thank you for listening. This is another episode of the 3D Pod. Have a great day. 
You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.